Hi, everyone. Welcome to Maroon 5, a podcast for people who love to listen and talk about music. My name is Jim Bowen, and I'll be your host. Each week, I'll have a new guest and challenge them to give me five choices of music they would take if marooned on a desert island. Three albums, one compilation, and one song. Today, I'd like to welcome to the show an old friend of mine. Wait, 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 hey, 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 oh, wait, wait. Hey. What? Hold on, hold on. There's a mutiny today, Jim. No, what's going yes, on? Yes, there is. All right, we're turning the tables. You've put a few people through this torturous exercise of putting us on a deserted island. What do you mean torturous? <laughs> it's torturous in coming up with the mu- the little bit of music that we're allowed to take with us. So we're going to turn the tables on you, and today we're going to learn from you what you would take to your island. Oh. We're going to learn what your castaway cuts are going to be. Okay, who the hell are you? Who the hell am I? <laughs> if people don't recognize my voice, my name is Matt, and I was Jim's first guest on this show yeah. and his first guest on another show that he had. Oh. You know, we're going way back, way back. Jim, mm-hmm. this was a fun exercise, and I hope you had fun trying to figure out what you were going to take. But that you had a few episodes of doing this, you've probably been thinking all along about what you would take with you. Do you want to know something? That's not true. If you want to speak to someone, speak to Len Kenyon. And I told him at the beginning of this show, before I recorded any episodes, what my five choices were, and they haven't changed. Really? They have not changed. Really? So you put thought into this prior to even kind of starting this then? I did. Well, I mean, first of all, I had to think about if anybody stumbled across any of my choices. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and what would happen then? Did you have to change any of them because somebody stumbled upon? No, no. My choices are mine. They're completely different from everyone else. And I probably did bring a, a couple of guests on that could have crossed paths with me somewhere. Uh, maybe yourself included, uh, Len being another one who might have been. But I haven't really... Uh, separated myself from these choices and I'm happy with the reasons why I picked them when I had the concept of the show in the first place. Okay. And that's what I'm interested in finding out is why you chose what you did, because there were a couple, I was a little surprised. Some of them I'm like, Oh no, that's, that's Jim. Yeah. I can, (laughs) I can totally see him bringing that. When I came on the first episode of the show, you asked me about how my musical tastes were formed. So what about you? What are some of the first things you remember, not you making the choice, but just growing up and they were in the atmosphere that you heard? I grew up in a household that was very dominated by country music. And I'm not really a country music fan. I'm not knocking it. And I understand why people like it. But like other genres of music, it kind of all sounds the same to me. And that's my biggest problem with it. But I do enjoy some old fashioned stuff like Kenny Rogers was played all the time in my house growing up. And I would love a Kenny Rogers record to this day. Willie Nelson was played a lot in my household. And and I love Willie Nelson. And those two had a lot of crossover success too. Oh, absolutely. They were, they were in between the pop and the country charts back and forth quite a bit. So when this was like current, your dad wasn't cranking out the old uh, Hank Williams. No, it was the current country, the old Willie Nelson. I think all he's always on my mind came out in 1979 to 81, somewhere in yeah, there. Yeah, somewhere around that. That was a big album in my house. 
And then my parents had three records that I distinctly remember that weren't country that I listened to over and over and over again. None of them made the list, but it was the Jackson five's greatest hits, the Beatles yesterday and today. Very nice. And ABBA's super trooper. Oh, who didn't have ABBA? (laughs) So, and I would say probably the most play was the, the Jackson five's greatest hits and the Beatles yesterday and today. Can't go wrong with either of those. <laughs> no, they, they were great albums to grow up with. And to this day, I, I, you know, I can still see that album cover of the Beatles yesterday and today. It's not one of my albums, so I'm sorry I'm talking about it now. <laughs> I'm not supposed to do this. You let me name like 20 when I first came on. <laughs> I think that album really covers a lot of Beatles ground for kind of, it was kind of a compilation, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't really a studio album per se, Ringo came on and did act naturally. There are songs on there that almost sound like the beginning of um, Americana jam band music, which well, act naturally. That's a Buck Owens. Yeah, it is. Song, and, so yeah. you're going back to the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where do you want to start Jim on your castaway cuts? What have you prescribed yourself an order that you're going into? Yeah, I have an order. Or, okay. You have an order, an order, an order of, your number ones at the top or your number ones at the bottom? Nope, there's no order that way because I think I brought each one of these albums for distinctively different reasons. I would actually say I probably don't even have what would be one of my favorite albums on the list. I need these albums to know I can survive on the island because they provide what I need within that style and genre of music. Okay, so it sounds like at the end when we're wrapping this up, you're going to have an honorable mention. Yeah, I'm going to have that list of 30 albums. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yes. Jim, let's get this ball rolling. What is going to be your first? Castaway cut number one is going to be Dire Straits Making Movies. Dire Straits Making Movies. 19. There goes Matt digging through his notes. I didn't think he was going to save that one first. Ah. I, I, I really didn't. I thought you were going to save that one. No, I'm going to start with it first because I think it's kind of the odd one out. Oh, if definitely. you don't know Dire Straits outside of Money for Nothing and Walk of Life and that little flash in the pan they had in the 80s where they were almost one of the biggest bands in the world for about six months, there's not really probably much you care about of them. It probably sounds the same. There's probably a generic sound almost. You might know Sultan's a Swing. You might know Romeo and Juliet. They've been in movies. You know, Sultan's a Swing is on every classic rock radio station. And the guitar solos oh, well geez, appreciated yeah. by people. Yep. And it's strange that when Money for Nothing got big, I don't really remember there being a big groundswell of, hey, let's pay attention to the Dire Straits older. No, album. not at all. And I loved Money for Nothing as a kid. So I didn't dig back to Dire Straits at that time. I, that was probably 14 not or 15 years old. And you didn't have to. Classic Rock Radio was going to take care of that. And, but not even, not even, <laughs> you're right, but not Dire Straits as much. Because even to this day, Classic Rock Radio still only plays maybe the swing. swing. So despite Mark Knopfler being like, he's one of my favorite guitarists. Mm-hmm. I really like listening to him and Lindsey Buckingham, that finger picking yep. style. But they really have kind of escaped me understanding them and appreciating them. So this is probably the album I listened to the most when you gave me your list. I probably, I I think I found the album in a bargain bin like maybe 10 years ago, right? And I listened to it, but I remember 
seeing it for the first time and looking at an eight minute song on side one and how much real estate it took <laughs> up. I'm like, oh, that's that's a bold choice to start an album out. And I had kind of remembered the song, but not really. So, but then I put it on. I'm like, oh, this is okay. I kind of see where he's coming with mm-hmm. this. But, and it took me a few listens and I was still kind of scratching my head a little bit. I kind of understood. And then I discovered the volume knob on my stereo. <laughs> this album really needs to be loud when you're listening mm-hmm. to it. There's a lot of layers and things fighting for the same frequency range and volume. But once you pick it out, you know it's there and you can kind of enjoy it at any level. It's a, it's a full band. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the rhythm guitar playing is really understated mm-hmm. in the mix, but it's so unique. Well, let me take you down sentimental road with me. That's okay. okay let's because go. I think there's something you'll understand. And I'm going to name check somebody here. If you wanted to know, I'm preempting your question. So here, cross this one off. Like, how did you, how did yeah. you find this album anyway? When I was 18 years old, 19 years old, I was working at the movie theater in Newport and hanging out with Jim Wentworth quite a bit. And Jim Wentworth was probably the first person to play this album to me. And I'll tell you this, the first time I heard it, it didn't really hook me in. It didn't catch me. And, and no, there's no big, there's no really big hook. No, on. no. So there, there's stuff that you have to digest and let it sink in. And then it, and then it hits you. I went and saw them play live really before I had dived into their music, but their live show was so strong and so good. So, you know, I went back and as I dug through dire straits, the, album became important to me and to this day tunnel of love if you were to ask me what my favorite song of all time is that's it the only reason probably why this album is on this list is because i didn't want to pick tunnel of love to be my song when i started looking at the other songs on this album like romeo and juliet and skate away yeah, and kind of after you hear a tunnel of love, you want to hear Romeo and Juliet, and then you want to hear Skate mm-hmm. Away. You know, there are certain songs where we will write, you want to hear, oh, I heard that song, now I want to hear it this. It follows one. it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this album just had a, a connection with an old friend, a mentor of mine, who I really enjoyed spending time with when I was in my formulative years of listening to music. I think formulative years will come through quite a bit in this episode, <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, d- yeah, definitely. And Jim, in, it sounds like in this in this case, he almost filled like that much older brother role in helping you discover new. Oh, things. absolutely. Stuff that I wouldn't have ever heard. And, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that because down yeah. the road, when I was in conversations with people about music, it was important to be knowledgeable about music. Jim Wentworth definitely gave me an education that I was able to take into future conversation. One thing I was drinking heavily one night, I know there's a big surprise hey. shock value. Um, and I was listening to this album, kind of taking notes and preparing for this. And I'm listening to Martin Hoffler playing blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? This would be very interesting if you were to plot Stevie Ray Vaughan into these <laughs> songs because of all the noodling and solo work that he does throughout yep. the songs. It's kind of, they're kind of like blues yeah. songs. In that, in that, you know, sing something, then I'm going to do a lick. Sing something, yep. do a lick. And man, man, if we plop a Strat instead of a Telecaster in there mm-hmm. and crank it up with Stevie Ray Vaughan. 
Stevie Ray Vaughan is one of my favorite guitar players, and he would trump he would oh, trump yeah. Mark Knopfler in my book. Yep. Mark Knopfler is a great composer, songwriter. And if you listen to this album and think about the fact that he was asked to do film soundtracks after this album came out for, there's a movie from Scotland from over here called local hero that he did the soundtrack to, he did the soundtrack to the princess bride. I think that there's a cinematic quality that's not as in depth as the guitar playing and the music really what I love the most about on this album and why it is coming to the Island with me is the piano playing there. I love piano. I love the sound of piano and the playing and everything going on, but I couldn't imagine being on the Island and not having that crisp clear. I appreciate everything Martin Offler brings to it and I love it and it's fantastic, but the piano playing on this album is just fantastic. And you don't have to have Elton John or Billy Joel there to do it for you. I had a note in my in my stuff here where I'm I'm listening to it and I'm like every once in a while I get Bruce Springsteen vibes. Yep. yep. And I'm really glad you brought up the uh, piano mm-hmm. part because as I was listening to this I would occasionally and I'd probably be more if the piano was a little bit higher in the mix that I was getting Bruce Springsteen vibes occasionally. And that's because Roy Bitten played on this album who was in the East yeah, Street Band. Yeah, that doesn't, I, I didn't know I would, that. That, that, that. I didn't know that. <laughs> and and I was, I, and I, I wish I knew the names. It could have been Skate Away or It's in a lot of the but songs. I would, it's, it, yeah, and it's just like every once in a while when the guitar is taking a breath and you can hear the piano and you're like, God damn, that really kind of reminds me of Springsteen. Uh, and then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, maybe that's why it sounds like. Well, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all, because the other reason I was going to give for bringing this album to the island was that it kind of has, for, you know, for a British band, for guys coming out of the the British rock and roll scene, there's this really kind of almost Americana country swing sound in some of it. But another thing that I think that it gets called over here that makes sense. And if you think about Springsteen is pub rock, you know, it kind of like that, that kind of rock and roll music that everybody in the whole place can listen to. And his voice, his voice is Dylan-esque at times too. Well, exactly. Because one of the other reasons that I like to listen to this album and Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits is because you can sing along to it all day long and not feel like you're a bad singer, <laughs> you know, yeah. compared to you know, who <laughs> yeah, you're singing yeah. with. And it's not to knock his voice. It, it works for everything that he does. Yeah, it, it does. It, it's a unique voice and a sound and it's why he's been successful. Yep. It, yeah, I would agree. And as I was saying, I, you know, these songs could fit as being blues songs. They could also fit as being country songs. They could, they could. Absolutely. They have that kind of no, swing you, to them. So you mentioned tunnel mm-hmm. of love. Are there any other high points on that album for you? I mean, high, high points. I, I know the whole <laughs> album's probably a high point. I, I do love skate away. Obviously Romeo and Juliet has a sentimentality that I think is oh. amazing. And when I was a kid, you know, listening to that, you know, it was something that was very romantic to me. I think possibly mm-hmm. it's been overplayed in films to this day, and but it's still a very special song. Skate Away, I love the imagery of Skate Away. I love the lyrics. I think about if, you, if you're going for a run, if you're on a bike, and if you're on roller skates, 
the lyrical narration of it is about making up stories in your head to the songs that mm-hmm. you're listening to. And I yeah. think it's just very relatable. Yeah, you're putting yourself in the star yeah, of the song. <laughs> and the music makes you want to be the story. And the story was whatever was the song, what it was. Yeah. What a clunky line, but it makes yeah. it hit. Yeah. So I like that. Yep. And I can skate away. And he's talking about Roller Girl. I always just think of Boogie Nights. Yeah, I do too now. Yeah. <laughs> There's only one Roller Girl now after Boogie Nights. Yes, I know. Thank you. I, I do also have to say that in listening to the album to prepare for the show, because like you talk about being on side one and I own it on vinyl, you know, flipping it over and listening to it. And that's why I mentioned Expresso Love earlier and said, well, I didn't mention Expresso Love, but I said four songs because mm-hmm. I really, really dig now the riff the deepness do 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 to express so love and what's going on and i think that's also okay. where i picked up a little bit more on the piano and the piano line digging in it's great i think uh less boys is such a fun i love it's that so song. good now if i can go back quickly mm-hmm. to romeo and juliet yes in listening to romeo and juliet i became aware how important the drums are to the dire straits because that song you know he comes out he's playing his guitar and then the drums hit like a minute or so into the song and i'm like well the drums really move these songs forward (laughs) yep (laughs) because you you don't really hear it's is kind of hard to hear the rhythm guitar at least for my ears but the drums really are what kind of drives these songs along it's funny when you say that when i started probably the the most important band in my lifetime, Cinderblock Baby, and first brought Lenny into the band, I sent him home with a tape of music to listen to, to say, these are the songs that I like. This is the music that influences me. And this is the kind of drumming that I love and would like to hear in the music. And I, I it wasn't Romeo and Juliet. It was Tunnel of Love, but it was off this album. Okay. So I'm going to take that compliment on Romeo and Juliet and take it to that and say, I recognize that and that these drums do drive these songs. And it's one of the reasons, of course, I think Lenny was 16 or 17 years old at the time and loved Pearl Jam mm-hmm. and was like, why are you having me listen to <laughs> Dire Straits? We're going to, I want to go make Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> but, it's because you got to learn. It was the principle. Yes. Yes. It was the principle of the whole thing. Jim, we have spent some time on Dire Straits. And everybody listening is waiting with bated breath to hear your castaway cut number two. My castaway cut number two is going to be Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. This is such an amazing, beautiful album. I want to say it might have been three days after it was released. Stevie Wonder was in the horrible car crash. I read I didn't know about that. And I read it when I was preparing for Mm -hmm. this and I'm like, holy yeah shit i had no idea yeah, he it sounds like it was horrific so yeah this album just really has a lot of everything that i want to embrace in r&b music i love motown i love funk i love that kind of r&b ballad there's just something about the album as a whole that completes it for me yeah, I find it when 
when I get to the end of an album and I immediately have to start listening to it again, then I know, okay, we're on to something here. It's, it, it's filling some holes that I need filled. The album does a really good job starting kind of slow and building and getting better and better and better and better. Yeah. That's the way albums should kind of be, you know, there's this philosophy of having a couple of hit songs and then maybe not one and then a couple of big ones or, you know, one thing or the other. But this album just kind of keeps ascending song to song to song. Yeah, yeah because I remember the first time I heard Too High, the opening song on it, I'm like, that's really it's a good mm-hmm. song. But I'm like, I don't know if I would have opened an album with that be. But then as the album goes on, it's like, oh, I'm glad you didn't start it with Higher Ground because there's no way to go but down after that. Yeah. The funny thing about Higher Ground is you could probably take that song off the album for me and it'd still be on this list. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Higher Ground almost interrupts the album for me because the album is so different on either side of it. And Higher Ground is such a big, iconic song for Stevie Wonder. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And it's probably the first song you ever heard off the record. And you probably didn't hear the rest of the record until much later. And then you're, when you first put on, it's like, wait, where's higher ground? I want to hear higher ground. And then you just give the rest of it a chance and you're blown away. It's not a singles album, but higher ground is a single. And there's nothing that sits around it. That's going to lead you to that song. So that's why I feel like it kind of distracts a little from the entire album, but if yeah, I'm not gonna tell you to take it off. If I'm gonna take it to the island, no, I'll yeah, take higher no, ground. No, no, with no, me. no. So, what are some high spots on this? Uh, album? High spots. What aren't high spots on the album? Like I said, the album yep. ascends to me. So, obviously, too high. Starting off the way that it starts. Yep. Jesus, Children of America is probably one of the only gospel songs I'll ever listen to. <laughs> in my life is that the, that's the name of it right jesus children of america did i get that yeah yes jesus children i got of that america. right uh I, I love the second half of the album probably more than the first half not that i don't like all of it i love the last three songs on this album incredible oh so do i you know all is fair and love oh. is possibly the, the best breakup song of all time if you ever get broken up with <sighs> If some girl breaks up with you, some guy, some dude, in one way or the other, you go sit down and you listen to this song, All is Fair in Love, and it just tells you. All in love is fair. Sorry. All in love is fair. (laughs) But that's the point. It is. Yeah, it (laughs) it is. All is fair in love. All in love is fair. It's it's one of those songs where you don't even let the song finish before you start it over. No. But if you you let it finish, you're, you're rewarded with his the way his voice kind of just ends i think song. it actually it's also so, ends with this really uh, cool kind of piano progression yeah. at the end that just kind of builds up and ends on uh, this off key and then that that the way that it ends and this is why the album comes with me is it ends on this very awkward key or this chord and then don't you worry about a thing kicks in <laughs> immediately after yeah. with these happy upbeat piano lines Oh yeah, but all all in love is fair. I mean, the way when he starts to really dig in with his vocals, uh, just you get chills when you listen to mm-hmm. it. And that, to me, that's probably my favorite. Song. A writer takes his pen to write these words again that all in love is fair. Oh jeez! But it's it's all yeah. about just breaking up and writing a love song and losing it, and it it's almost a 
a song that's about how generic it is to go through heartbreak. If you think about it. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are various ways that a, a relationship could mm-hmm. end, but you know, there's always one of two feelings that you have about you're either relieved or you're completely torn yeah. off. But that's why I think, don't you worry about a thing is such a great follow-up to it because oh, you've yeah. been sitting there and you're like, Oh my God, I've let go. I feel, you know, I understand this. And then don't you worry about a thing comes on and follows it up. Yep. And it's, Hey, you know what? You know, it's going to be okay. It's fair. Don't you worry <laughs> about a thing. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> and don't you worry about a thing. Yep. It's just like the reason why this song and I picked these last three tracks is so great to me. I think don't you worry about a thing has one of the most beautiful vocal lines melody lines that are extended i don't know there's magic in that that's stevie wonder's greatest right there and that little pause you had when you were trying to figure out how to put into words what you felt that's when you know how genuine of a feeling you have towards it because it almost leaves you speechless yep you don't know how to quantify it and when you struggle to do that that's when you're like oh it, this is making me feel something. What is it that exactly is making me feel? What's really another one, my, one of my favorite artists is Prince, mm-hmm. where you can kind of relate to Stevie Wonder because he plays so many instruments on this album where I think it's like six of the nine songs. He plays every instrument on Every it. single one. He, he gets help from the two guys with the synthesizer mm-hmm. programming and everything. But I mean, that's because that's a new thing coming along. But just he's so talented. Yeah, yeah. The synthesizer was really modern in its day. And what's cool is, as much as we complain to each other in other episodes of podcasts we've done about yeah. synthesizer sounds, yeah. <laughs> this, this album does not seem affected or seem electronic to me in any kind of way that you have synthetic music start to transpose in later years. Yeah. Because they don't get carried away with it. No, because it is just a new technology. So it's not too wild, but it was also the greatest technology of its era. Oh, it, it was. It, it, he it, had it the, the console. It has a name. I forget what the name of it was. Yeah. I, I read about it and I remember and, reading, there was like an acronym for the name. It was the first time any kind of artist sat down to this type of synthesizer. Stevie Wonder is a great Castaway Cup for your second. The time has come for your final album of your Castaway Cups. You brought us from Dire Straits to Stevie Wonder. Now, what is going to be your third selection? My third selection for Castaway Cuts, number three, is going to be not number three, but <laughs> Led Zeppelin 2. I was really, this is the one I was extremely surprised of because I never knew you to be a Led Zeppelin fan. I, I have a lot of love and respect for Zeppelin. And I love a, a lot of their songs, a lot of their music off other albums. I'm not a guitar player, I'm, or well, I have like an acoustic guitar player, but mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've never been the guy who wanted to be the lead guitar player in a band. So I never worshiped Jimmy Page. I never thought I should belong trying to sing, you know, Robert Plant vocals and songs. But as a bass player, 
I always had a tremendous amount of respect for John Paul Jones. You know, Led Zeppelin too. if I'm going to take phenomenal rock and roll music, it has to come off this album for me because this album is where they are really legitimately ripping off the blues <laughs> artists that came from the 1920s and 30s. Yep. But but I'll I'll talk about that and I have a forgiveness for them if you want to hear that. Mm-hmm. It's also possibly the only albums where John Paul Jones really got a lot more sound and exposure and freedom on bass in mm-hmm. my opinion compared to the other songs that were more riff driven. Because this album was more bluesy, you tend to lead into the bass a little bit more. Yeah. And all of the riffs that I need to have from rock and roll music mm-hmm. can come off of this album from you know beginning to end. Yeah, and I don't read a whole lot of like magazine articles or internet stuff on individual musicians. But it seems to me from kind of like talking to people and everything, it really seems like people have forgotten how great John Paul Jones is on a bass guitar. Or maybe they take it for granted. I think people have, but not that the music world ever forgot because he was in Them Crooked Vultures, which means, you know, Dave Grohl came along and wanted to play drums with him as a bass player. You know, come on. Yeah, it's, it's John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. Who's not going to want to, you know, play with him? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think. I think maybe just he couldn't shine past Bonham and Page and Plant. You know, what's funny. There was an article that came out, I want to say late 2000s, early mm-hmm. 2010s. And Rolling Stone magazine had a poll to put together your favorite band of all time. And they offered up all of the, the members of all of these rock bands across history. And of course, Plant, Page, Bonham, and John Paul Jones were all included <laughs> in it. After the voting came through, all four of those members were the top of that vote. Really? All four of those members. So basically, the Rolling Stone poll was that it's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it, you know, like. And like I said, I don't buy into all of their music, all of their songs. On this album, I was listening to it and prepping for the show, going back to it, and whole lot of love. What a great riff. What a great intro. Iconic. I mean, iconic. I think people are born now with that, with the knowledge that that exists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You just know that riff is there. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is when it gets to the trippy, weird part in it, Mm -hmm. and I know what is and what should never be is next. And then the lemon song is next. I often find myself being like, well, I'm going to skip the end of this song and go straight to what is and what should never be and get on with like the meat and potatoes of it. That riff is great. All of it's cool. Mm -hmm. But I, I do skip that first bit after a start just because of my need to not feel like I'm having a acid flashback (laughs) listening, (laughs) you know, to that, that bit at the end. You know, it goes into what isn't what should never be the gong. Of oh, it, yeah. On that. that just lingers forever. Yeah. And then the panning of the guitars <laughs> that go. And you're in headphones and you're hearing it back and forth. And yeah. then the drums pick up with it. 
it's just a great bring back to the song. I love it. The Lemon Song. I've told you this. We've known each other for many, many, many years. I mean, you played bass for me and you are my go-to bass player. So I, I hope that's a compliment. It is. It is. The Lemon Song is my favorite recorded bass performance of all time. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah, it doesn't come down to, like, I respect bass players, Victor Wooten, Les Claypool, Flea, mm-hmm. these guys out there that everybody in the world thinks are phenomenal. I think about what I'm capable of doing, and I'm not possibly capable of playing everything John Paul Jones plays. But when I think about how much fun it would be to play the Lemon song, it's so rooted in just deep blues. I mean, it's Killing Floor. It's a Howling Wolf blues mm-hmm. song that they completely... Yep. You know, uh, well, I don't want to be slanderous and say ripped off because I don't know what happened <laughs> in their court case. But, you know, it's definitely a song that has heavy influence. The fast grooves are fun, but there's such good slinkiness behind yeah. the slow groove of the song. And the bass notes that John Paul Jones uses are so incredibly tasteful and lovely. Yeah, they are. And it, and, you could play the song. Most bass players can play the song because I don't think the point is to play it note for note. No. As long as you is you just come back to the one, yep. do your little fill, hold back. That's the important thing. Hold back. Sometimes it's just one, two, three notes yep. in between getting back to the one that make it because then you're like, well, I didn't have time to do this. That go around. Second go around. I'm going to go back. <laughs> right. And, and, and that's what makes it that's what yeah. gives it the groove and that's yeah. what makes it cool because it's unpredictable, but you, you, you can just kind of feel where he's going with it. You can yeah. feel the swing and you're like, Oh, he caught me off guard with that one. <laughs> yeah. You stay in the root, you stay in the root of it. Yeah. But go then back it, to the one. Boom. And then as the album moves on, obviously, thank you. is a great song. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of those classic slow songs from Zeppelin. The, the song's, Ramble On is possibly one of my craving songs that I have to go and listen to every once in a while. When you just have to go hear a song, for some reason, Ramble On to me is one of those tunes. And I had to go look it up because I was just kind of torn apart on the percussion at the beginning and at the end of it. And this mm-hmm. metronome kind of going on and not a drum set. And so I mentioned him earlier in the show, I messaged Lenny earlier today and I was like, what? what's going on there? You know, with, <laughs> what's Bonham doing? Cause it doesn't sound like a pad actually Bonham playing with his hands on a empty guitar case. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I didn't know. That. And that's, that's also one of the cool parts about Zeppelin that I really enjoy recording with a band before and thinking about how you could be experimental with sound and things you were going to do. You know, Zeppelin were the guys that put microphones in empty toilets and Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, did crazy stuff just to get different echo, you know, and find what they could get. So even though it is considered to be like that cradle of metal, there's so many dynamics, big time. And flow, give and take in quiet moments. Mm-hmm in loud moments within the same song. Yeah. That is one of the reasons that this is one of my more favorite albums in general, not just Led Zeppelin. 
Mm-hmm. I think you, as you move along, you know, you look at Moby Dick. Moby Dick is basically a 53-year-old drum lesson in patterns that are going to come along over the next, you know, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. You know, it's just triplets, triplet, 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 triplet. You know, it's it is what it is, but I think to this day now, I can understand why people look back on it and kind of feel a little worn out. But in its time, it was a big deal. And then the, here's the funny thing. And my, my, my last final part of this album, before you have any other questions, is going to be this. Because of Moby Dick, my, I do respect it, but I understand. And I think I probably experienced this the same way. If you had the album on and you got to Moby Dick and you're listening to it, and you're not a drummer and you're not so much into the instrumentation, you got friends hanging around, mm-hmm. you switch it. You switch the music. Yep. And I've often thought that, well, think about it this way. Led Zeppelin one came out in January. Yep. And then this one came out in what, August or October mm-hmm. within the same year. Yeah. <laughs> and they recorded this album in, in so many different places and maybe and they're touring and all this. So I've often wondered that if Moby Dick was included because they needed something. They probably did. They, I mean, they probably did. But what I find funny about including it on the album where it is, is that I never actually really listened to Bring It On Home that much until this past week. Oh, that's a great song. I love that song. It's a great song. Yeah. But because of how many times that I had that album playing that it got turned, just off turned it off because of Moby Dick, Bring It On Home was never a song that really got the same amount of airplay in my any of the atmospheres I was living in. And it's kind of like a weird segue into Moby Dick to bring it on home. It almost kind of doesn't fit to my ears yeah. going from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good, but it's a good like farewell at the end of the album. It, what I like about bring it on home is I think it's almost an admission to, we are really digging into. And, Stealing. I mean, ah, borrowing, borrowing influenced by influence. Yeah. Early American blues. I talk yeah. a lot about, how music has to be able to repeat itself a little bit mm-hmm. if we're going to be able to keep having music we like. You know, New music will never be something we appreciate if it doesn't repeat itself and have a little comfort and familiarity to it. Yeah, you got to have like a passing of the torch moment. Yeah, and what Led Zeppelin were phenomenal at doing were elevating this music that they were influenced by. Their biggest mistake was just trying to say that it was original to them and they weren't influenced by it. So, so, so maybe Greta Van Fleet in denying their Led Zeppelin um, inspirations is actually following through with their Led Zeppelin yeah, inspiration it's, it's, by it's, not claiming Led Zeppelin. It is. It is the same. It is the same step. At the beginning of this, I said how surprised I was that you brought up Led Zeppelin because we've never even talked about Led Zeppelin. Never. <laughs> to each no, but but so now that we actually have, I'm like, okay, maybe this just was something Jim didn't listen to while I was around. Nope, it wasn't. It was something I listened to after our years of hanging around together. So far, your album has been pretty well-rounded. You've had a, a metal, a rock, an R&B. Mm-hmm. So those are your three albums. Now was the time for your compilation. Yes. I know what it is, mm-hmm. but you and me are the only ones that know. 
<laughs> so if you could be so kind as to let everybody else in on the news. My compilation is the singles original motion picture soundtrack from the Cameron Crowe film Singles. You are so right that this is not a greatest hits compilation. Uh, it's a greatest hits of maybe 1991, 1992. It kind of is a time bottle. And you know what I want to say. It's a time capsule of that era. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Except for except for Paul Westerberg. He doesn't really fit. Paul Westerberg kind of had uh, a hanging on quality as an indie artist in the 80s. And I think that's why they brought him into this album. If you watch the movie and you want to have a romantic comedy, those songs kind of fit in there around all of the more avant-garde stuff that's going on. Yeah, they're probably the more radio-friendly stuff. I mean, aside from the songs that were on the radio, like Wood and Screaming Trees nearly lost you. It's mm-hmm. fun, poppy, jumping up and down tunes. Mm-hmm. Probably not something that I would listen to over and over again. I, I might, you know, pass by those songs on days where I'm angry I'm on the island. And I don't yeah, exactly. No, but this is your angry music where yeah. you're pissed off about being, being stranded on this island. But you, you talk about Wood, Alice in Chains. And, you know, I bring up several times in this show, you and I are bass player guys. And you hear that bass line rip in from Alice in Chains. This song was on the single soundtrack before it came out on the Alice in Chains mm-hmm. album much later. So one of the reasons why I picked this album, and I'll just tear into this straight away, is three of my favorite bands of the 90s would be Alice in Chains, Smashing Pumpkins, and Pearl Jam. The songs on this album by these bands are probably my top one or two songs. So Wood would be one of my favorite Alice in Chains songs. Maybe Man in the Box, which I really like, Mm -hmm. but that Wood might take that first. State of Love and Trust by Pearl Jam is just such a great song. I love the sound of it. I love the recorded sound of it. The original version of the song, the way they wrote it, was to sound more like a Neil Young song. So it had like a... I mean, it's it's really hard to explain because even the flow of it, they sped it up with Dave Abruzzi playing it and for the single soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But the original version with Dave Abruzzi playing it, it sounds a lot more like Crazy Horse. And I can understand why a producer in a studio would say, we need to speed this up, is that it's not the best example of Eddie Vedder possibly trying to sing like Neil Young, if that makes sense in that, yeah. that kind of like traditional four, four beat without that kind mm. of sway that Pearl jam has to their music. I understand why the guys, if they heard it that way, it makes more sense to them because as somebody who writes songs and you want to hear something a certain way and write it in a certain style, I've got to slightly be selfish as a listener and say, and I prefer it sped up and played with a bruisey. And I will say that I've never heard the original, but I can already tell you that I I would, I I like angry Eddie. And, and when he really digs into this, that's the Eddie I love. It is. It's yeah. It's the best of the angry Eddie. 
Any other highlights off that album? Oh, come on. Any other highlights? Come on, man. Come on. Let's, let's go. This is your this is your time to shine. You're, well, this is the, the time for your castaway cuts to shine. Here we go. So, yeah, man. Come on. It's got a Jimi Hendrix song on it. Yes. It's got yes. May, there, May This Be Love. And while I understand this is not the iconic Jimi Hendrix. That's what's great. It, it It's not taking fire and putting it on an album that everybody no. knows. You know, you're taking something that, yeah. you know, maybe a deeper cut for Hendrix. It still has great guitar ingenuity. What Hendrix song doesn't. Yeah, but it still has really <laughs> cool groove to it. You know, that that signature Jimi Hendrix sound mm-hmm. is in that song. So to be honest with you, this is a little bit of a steal for me to have on the soundtrack to make sure oh. that on the island I can still hear a Jimi Hendrix song. And that's oh, that one... was great. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why on mine, I, I took a, a, a Ramones compilation, right? I, mm-hmm. I basically got three albums in one. You did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do. You have to think about where you're getting with it. And then the final track on the album, Smashing Pumpkins Drown. I was a big Smashing Pumpkins fan. I, would, I can attest to that. Yes, you can. I would say that possibly, you know, Siamese Dream or Gish would be one of the albums I would think about taking to the island with me. Drown is one of those completely separate songs because Drown's a song that came out on their greatest hits compilation that isn't on their albums. You know, it, it is on this soundtrack. It's a solo song. It got carried over to the greatest hits. I love the dynamic of Jimmy Chamberlain's drumming to Billy Corgan's guitar playing. I really enjoy Jimmy Chamberlain's drumming. I think he possibly is the best drummer par Dave Grohl from that era. You know, we talk about the the big four from the eighties, but there has to someday come a conversation about the big five or six from 91, mm-hmm. you know, with Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. I, I don't think you get that conversation with Chamberlain because uh, Corgan kind of outshines everything else in the band. It's it, it, it kind of is the Billy Corgan show. But Corgan never would have gotten those songs to sound the way they did without him. I I agree, but I I don't know how he would view that statement. I think that the reason why Jimmy Chamberlain keeps coming back to him is because Billy Corgan understands that. Because doesn't he kind of blame Eha for the breakup? Well, they there there were different reasons. I mean, Jimmy Chamberlain had drug issues. You know, yeah. he was out of the band yeah. for a while because of that. You know, there were different things that were going on relationships. James Eha, Darcy. And I think ultimately in the end that Billy Corgan just got sick of it all and decided to restart the band without everybody else. But then, but then also those first two albums, Gish and Siamese dream were recorded with Jimmy Chamberlain and Billy Corgan kind of by themselves. They didn't bring James Eha and Darcy in until they were going to get ready to go out and play live. It was hard for me to leave Siamese dream off this and to just go for this as my compilation. Oh, I know. I know you love that, that album. But go listen to <laughs> the, the song Geek USA after this. If you want to listen to rock drumming at its best in 1993, go listen to Geek USA. And okay. imagine trying to be the drummer playing a two-hour show. And this is the song in the middle of what you have to play with everything else going on. 
Is there anything else you want to talk about for this single soundtrack? Yes, because I can't leave Chloe Dancer Crown of Thorns off, you know, talking about this soundtrack. This song was huge. It was beautiful. This song was possibly the rose in my garden of 1991, 1992 music. The film itself, I was a Cameron Crowe fan. You know this. You know Say Anything. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody who knows Jim from that era, you know, early 90s, late 80s, Say Anything was a big deal to me. I was looking forward to this movie and Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, a lot of people don't know, is also featured in Say Anything when John Cusack is leaving the house for the final time and he turns the stereo up beyond the red mark. And he's going. That okay. is the song that's playing. You know, I'll, I'll admit, I've only seen Say Anything once. Shame on Which you. is, I know, it's kind of a crime because I did enjoy the movie. I'm a, I mean, who doesn't love John Cusack mm-hmm. to begin with? Uh, but singles, I don't even know if I ever made it through this movie once. You know, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really watching a lot of television. So I wasn't really aware of what was out there commercially. It really was one of those movies that I probably thought represented me or showed people in it that I wanted to be like one day at that time of my life. When I was 19 years old, you had your guys in flannels and backwards baseball caps and torn jeans. And, you know, they were playing this different kind of rock music. No, but there was a, there was a dichotomy of, People who were normal, who liked to go out and listen to this hard rock, new alternative music that was going on. And then the people who were performing it and living it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's what was involved in this movie. You didn't have to look the part to enjoy the music. All right. So now we've gone through R&B, rock and roll, some hard rock metal to the grunge. Mm-hmm. And now we're coming to your single castaway cut. The one song that you would take with you on your island. Don't hate. Oh, What's it going to be, Jim? Oh, oh. Don't hate you? Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> the song I'm going to take to my island is drenched in 80s reverb and cheese. And it is the song Never Surrender by Corey Hart. Hey, just because... I, I may have some sound challenges with it. Doesn't mean that the sentiment and the performance of the song isn't awesome because it is, it does because you gave me the song. And at first I went, Oh yeah, this is, this is eighties gym. One hundred percent. But then I lit, but then I listened to it and I'm like, oh, this, you know, this has got a great message. Corey Hart's a uh-huh. good singer. He's uh-huh. a good songwriter. You watch the video and that's when I start to cringe a little bit. I'm like, okay, then just don't watch the goddamn no. <laughs> video because it takes away it takes away from the song. Uh, so what is it that drives you to this song? The song, in my opinion, is semi-timeless as far as the message goes. Oh, definitely. It's a fight song. It, it didn't come back into my life until I moved to Scotland. I came across this and I probably came across the song at a time in my life when I needed to. Yeah. The message of no matter what happens, don't give up. I think we've talked extensively about my love and 
maybe a little bit of your admiration for the saxophone solo lost in 80s music. Yes. You know, it was almost a case of making sure that I picked a song that featured saxophone because I spoke earlier about loving the piano of Dire Straits. So I've got my piano there. I've got great guitar playing from Mark Knopfler. Thank you very much. And then we go to, then, then we go to Jimmy Page. Another great guitarist. Yeah. And then we have also, you know, drumming and bass playing. I think then we go to Stevie Wonder where everything is just a magical mystery of mm. what he does. It's just a, a, incredible. We go to a, a snapshot of my life with singles and that soundtrack. But when it comes to the 1980s, I actually begged my parents to take saxophone lessons and to rent a saxophone out for me. And the first time I ever learned scales and music was in fifth grade because I loved a song that had saxophone solo in it. Oh, okay. And I would say from probably 1982 to 1986, saxophone was just as dominant as a solo in a song. Yeah, it was. As anything else. Yeah, pop-wise. Yeah, it's definitely a holdover from the 70s. But a holdover in the best way. It was almost like a revival of the 1950s in the way that the sax would come in and play. It's got a pleasurable build to the saxophone solo in the whole chorus outro and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. But there are moments in my, my life in the past 10 years where... Because I've come across this song, I've had that Breakfast Club 80s moment where you pump your fist in the air because it just made you feel good. Yeah. And this is a song that I've gone back to and listened to. And it has reminded me to not give up, to not give in. And as you, you get through your struggles of life, your ups and downs, you know, going through your 40s, your job market, your bills, the struggles that face you. There's something about the message of this song that if I actually needed to hear it and feel like I I had strength inside, Mm -hmm. I'd go listen to it. Yeah. It's a fight song. It's a pep talk. It is. I I think sometimes people may be um, avoiding sharing, you know, some of their more favorite, songs or artists because they think they might get ridiculed it's like you know what don't don't give a shit about anybody who's going to say something critical negatively about what you like musically because if something makes you feel something inside then embrace it i'm not going to deny that this is a slice of cheese Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but it's a tasty slice of cheese because I, I thought because that's exactly what I thought. And then halfway, you know, not even halfway through the song, I'm singing along, you know, I'm belting <laughs> it out. Right. Because it's it's a it's a well And you were mentioning the whole reverb bling. This isn't really one of the worst offenders of the 80s cheese sound. Well, you you sent me the video of him redoing the song in 2020. Right. And the, what a perfect time to re-release a song like this. And, and his re-release of it was beautiful. It was a case of an artist who knew he wasn't going to hit those same notes that he could hit when he yep. was young. I still think he could have. It was interesting to see him drop an octave yes. on some of it. Yeah, be- because it fit the piano-driven melody better. Yep, yep, yep. And the other thing I have to say for Corey Hart is when we look back at all those people in the 80s who have 
you know, gotten older and look absolutely horrible. That video you showed me from 2020. He looks awesome. Just like, <laughs> he looks awesome. He does. Well, Jim, we are at the end. You've given yes. us your three albums, your mm-hmm. compilation, mm-hmm. and your single. I'm going to give you the opportunity, even though we've mentioned a few things, to give an honorable mention. What was on the cusp, whether it's a different compilation song or album? Was there anything on the cusp that just didn't make it? It's hard for me to go into this and leave off. And I'm going to just run through some stuff real quick. Anything, you know, kind of, you know, the Nirvana, Chili Peppers. I was a big 311 fan. I know a lot of people aren't into 311, but they're one of my favorite bands. Yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah. And I understand that. If there's anything I left off, if I had to switch the song out just for 80s cheese and positivity, it would have been Young MC's Bust a Move. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That would have had you grooving. But just for fun, you know, it's not about being serious about it or trying to share a song or spread a song on my part. I get the joy of listening to all the music everybody's sharing with me right now. All right. Hey, listen up. You should know this is a crossover show. Buckle up. Buckle up. So Maroon 5 is going to stay in production. And it will stay in production for as long as people want to come on and talk about their five choices on their island. However, Matt and I, we actually enjoy talking to each other quite a bit about music. And here we are from 1988 to today, you know, doing a podcast. We were talking, you know, we talked about the, what's that, 36 years? Yeah. You know, of talking about music with one another. But I'll tell you, everybody out there should know this. We've never made part of our hanging out and pastime. Let's go sit and hang out and listen to music. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that we would have had some really lively discussions about that (laughs) because back in the day, our musical tastes were probably quite different. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, probably, I think more on my end, I'm a little bit more open to uh, other people's, you know, tastes in music. (laughs) So that's the reason why Matt and I are going to go. So now I'm not talking to Matt. I'm talking to you, whoever's listening. (laughs) That's the reason why, you know, we're going to do this show called The Jam Yearbook. It's going to take over the production schedule of Rune 5. And hopefully we'll be able to have a new episode for you every other week. But we've gotten into the production of it. We're super happy with it. And I think Maroon 5 is a wonderful concept that I can continue with, with people who are interested in being on the show and listening to what the choices would be. But it's also a great chance. And thank you, Matt, for coming on today and hosting oh, this. Oh, well, and you it, know, it, uh, thank you for giving me the chance to uh, take over and host your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. I mean, the, the whole point of you doing this is so that people will come listen to our new show because they'll understand that we have a rapport that's really quite natural. We've known each other for, you know, so many years. And yeah. And when we're doing this type of show, yeah, we put prep work into it. We get ready. We we listen to it, but we wind up talking like a couple of friends with their regular old opinions on. Yeah. Because you can do so much research, but you can't, you still can't get past your opinion on something. No, no. 
And you did and very I'm, well holding back any of your opinions on. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because I'm not a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan. No, but out of respect, I know you are. So there's nothing to be gained by me trashing Smashing Pumpkins because so many people love them. So why do it? But I bet you you're not a Pumpkins fan because you can't stand Billy Corgan's voice. Uh, yes, yes, and that's the reason. <laughs> that and, is, and the reason why people get over that is because. The guitar playing and the drumming is phenomenal in Pumpkin's music. I do love the guitar sound mm-hmm. and the drumming. Yeah. So, you know, and that's that's where you and I are able to have those types of conversations. And what I also appreciate is that we're objective with each other's opinions on music. And that's why it's important to do this show with you, because you will tell me to go listen to something. And I might have a preconceived notion of why I don't like it already, but I have the ability oh, yeah, to go does. listen to something and think, why does Matt like this? And I might. Yeah, hear- you got to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Yeah, I might hear that in that. And yeah. after 36 years of friendship, we have the ability to do that with each other. In yeah, music. yeah. If we could just do that with other things besides music, you know, little empathy. Why does that person <laughs> think the way they do? <laughs> uh, that, I think that that would make the world a better place. Yes, it would. So, so Jim. I am going to leave it to you to sign off of your own podcast since oh. I since I took it over. But I will <laughs> leave it to you to do a, a sayonara. All right. Know. I'll do the sayonara for everybody. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to my choices, what I would take to me with my desert island. I'm, I'm happy with them. I picked them back in October, early November. I am incredibly thankful for Matt for coming on and playing host. As everybody here can see, he's absolutely phenomenally capable of being a partner in crime, in podcasting, and in music. He has a wealth of knowledge, and I'm looking forward to going on with our show, The Jam Yearbook. And if anybody ever wonders why we're The Jam Yearbook, he came down to Jim and Matt. Jam. So. Yeah, and it came from you know sharing Google Sheets and everything. Yeah. And that was that was just an acronym that Jim got used. Jam instead of saying out Jim and Matt all the time, and then we're like, and then we just started talk, talking in it in that way. So that's why. And I was like, you named it. There you go. So there, yeah, there it is. you go. That's yeah, my fault. Everyone's so thank you. Fault. It is. It's fine. It's good. Uh, so yeah. So I will probably say from today in this show in this time spot on the next release will be a jam yearbook episode and, and we're looking forward to getting that out and for the world to hear i want to invite anybody and everybody to come on to maroon 5 send me a message let me know and i'll keep it going but until then i hope you're enjoying your music and peace love and podcasts